This podcast was recorded at State Library Victoria on Aboriginal land, the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Welcome back to In Those Days. I'm here with Christina Adams. Hi, Penny. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And we're going to start, before we have our guest today, with some Trove chat. Excellent. Now, Christina, have you seen that Trove has been in the news? I have not seen that. (laughs) Penny, I've been a bit distracted by Prince Harry in the news. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That has been big. Are you going to read it? I think I'll read Spare (laughs) Yeah, to give it a go, see what it's all about. Although I think I have a Understand. I, I feel like I'm getting the gist of it from, yeah. from the news reports of yeah, the day. Mm. Yep. No, actually Trove, the National Library of Australia's repository, um, digital repository, has been in the news because they've been reporting that it may have to shut down mid this year. Ooh, why? Which is bad for us, obviously, because well, that <laughs> makes it a bit awkward, really, doesn't it? The podcast. <laughs> because they're running out of funding. So they've been funded basically on a kind of a like a piecemeal kind of way. They get a a bunch of funding and then it runs out and then they ask for more and they ask for more. And they're getting to the end of that again and don't really have an ongoing commitment from the government. That is quite concerning. It uh, is concerning. To me. Um, And I think particularly when Trove was first launched, it was really kind of world leading. Mm. Um, And But like all kind of digital things, it needs to be updated. It needs like constant funding and I think it's quite it's quite wasteful to have to continuously ask for it they should just make a, a commitment to exactly. it exactly we are obviously a, a pro-trove podcast pro-trove. Un- unashamedly um you're not going to get um both sides in on that issue no here. no affirmative and negative no this, this is not a debate if people want to help trove I think a really good thing to do at the moment would be to write to the Federal Arts Minister, Tony Burke, Um, because he has been making quite positive noises about supporting the arts, but he hasn't said anything about what that means for Trove. So I'll provide the details of how you can contact him and also your local member and Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister as well. Now we're going to introduce our guest. Yay! She is a forest lover and activist. She's an artist, ceramicist, musician, and she is also my cousin. It's Felicity Law. Hello. Felicity, what's your experience with using Trove? I had the immense pleasure of spending a week at the National Library of Australia with my friend Luke, who had a fellowship and we spent a lot of time in the digital archives and it was on that occasion that I learned about Trove Mm. and started delving into the huge resources. So since then I've been very, very (laughs) pro-Trove. Do you still use it recreationally at home? Of course. You're a recreational user of Trove. Yes, I'm an enthusiastic (laughs) recreational user of Trove and it's an incredible resource. I think that's the great thing about Trove that it lets people use it for all kinds of different things. Like you can use it casually just for fun. And then there's also researchers and policymakers and proper historians and all kinds of different people using it. And it's that access that makes it really important. Anyway, but the thing that we're going to talk to you today about is gliders and in particular, greater gliders and yellow belly gliders. Christina, you have a degree in zoology. I do. Yes, I have a 
arts degree and a science degree, and my science degree was zoology-based. Yes, all zoology, actually. As soon as I could drop other dull subjects like <laughs> chemistry and physics, I did and just focused on zoology. Yeah, and you, Christina's a big, big animal lover. I am. Um, and Felicity has been involved in forest activism a lot over the last few years. But the thing that I have to admit is that when I first heard about greater gliders, I didn't know what they were and I just assumed they were a bird. (laughs) (laughs) And so for quite a long time Mm. I was listening to people talk about greater gliders and how they needed to be saved and I was just imagining them like sitting in in a little... Yeah, I, th- I thought they were birds. <laughs> okay. And, but they're not birds. No. What, what are greater gliders? <laughs> yeah, so can I just say I'm not a um, glider expert. No, but you do know that they're not birds. I'm just yeah. very clear they're not birds. My lay understanding of greater gliders, they're an arboreal mammal that live in the eastern states and they're about the size of a koala actually. <laughs> they're completely and utterly adorable. Mm. It's hard to describe just how incredibly gorgeous a greater glider is. Um, They've got these enormous fluffy ears and their long tails look like feather boas. They're quite amazing. That's where you got confused, Penny, with the feathers. That must have been That kind of terminology, that's what did me in. (laughs) So they're an an adorable... I mean, they're they're a possum, actually. They're a gliding possum. Yeah. Yeah. Christine, have you seen gliders in the wild? I have, and we actually have quite a big population of sugar gliders on our property. We we see oh. them quite regularly, and yeah, so that's been quite exciting. We've even had to call a wildlife rescue team to come and collect one one day when it wasn't travelling terribly well. So I've had much more experience with the smaller versions, but I am aware of the greater gliders. Because mm-hmm. uh, they're called greater because they're big. And they're the best. <laughs> But I got to see one uh, with Felicity at the end of 2021. We went out. We took my kids, which I did not necessarily think was a very good idea because I was worried that the gliders wouldn't like the noise of the children, but they don't care (laughs) because they're up the tree. They know they can't get them. We went out and it was very hot and I had a very little baby. So I was sitting in the car with the baby and there were mosquitoes and I was thinking, I'm not going to get to see a glider. And then all of a sudden they came up and they said, Penny, Penny, come come and see. And I was out of the car for about 30 seconds, I think, and bam, (laughs) there was a glider. It went up the tree and I saw the tail and it was... That's how all wildlife encounters should be. (laughs) I've been out for 30 seconds, here it is. Exactly. Phillip Island has a lot to learn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was was really, really lovely. So I went and I wanted to find out if there were many newspaper articles about gliders. And so I went and I looked in Trove and I looked, searched for greater gliders. Did not find much. But that was because that's not what they used to call greater gliders. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, do you know what they used to call them? No, no idea. What did they used to call them? They used to call them flying squirrels. Excellent. Mm. Everyone loves a squirrel. Mm. Because when, of course, when Europeans came to Australia and they're looking at the flora and fauna here, they really couldn't accept that it was just different. (laughs) (laughs) They had to kind of try and map it back Mm. to things that they already knew. They saw the marsupial 
as actually inferior to placental mammals mm. as well. So they'd sort of see it as, oh, it's a squirrel, but not quite right, you know. <laughs> An NQR. Yeah, I read a book by James Ashby where he talked about that. Yeah, and often when they talk about like platypuses and echidnas as being weird and mm. and somehow wrong and more primitive, yeah. um, that's kind of like was just Europeans' ideas of coming to Australia and just going, well, everything's not quite as good. Mm. And sometimes maybe that's why we can just take over as well because we're better and everything we do is better. We had a school excursion years and years ago at Hills Hill Sanctuary. I'm just going slightly off track here, Mm. but we had um, a bunch of American tourists on the same sort of tight path that we were on. And when we went into the platypus sanctuary... Our kids were all excited, but there was American guys like, oh, yeah, we've got those back at home. <laughs> we call them beavers. <laughs> Actually, it's a completely different thing, but thanks for your thoughts. So I guess a little bit similar. And, you know, because actually platypus, they're actually like perfectly evolved for their environment. Mm. Same with gliders. Anyway, I found an article that was from quite early, from 1854, and it's called Long-Tailed or Great Flying Squirrel. And they say that the scientific name is Patalvista tagunoides, but they changed that to Patalvista volan. And this, the article says, this beautiful animal... One of our Australian marsupials is the largest of the genus at present known to us. It measures about three feet six inches in length. I suppose that's about right. That's a bit... It's just a bit more than the centre circle at netball, of which the tail is more than one half. The body is covered all over with a soft, dense fur. The colour on the upper portion of the body is of a glossy black, while the underparts are pure white. Um, yeah, there's actually a uh, huge colour variation. Mm. So they probably just saw some that were that colour. Because I think that was often a bit of a problem with colour. Like they'd assume that animals that were different colours were different species mm. and they're not necessarily. The female has usually two or three young ones at birth. Well, I don't know. I didn't look that up. <laughs> <laughs> It might be true. Uh, They feed chiefly on the largest of the eucalypti or gum trees, preferring the leaves and young shoots of those trees. Though occasionally they eat insects. They don't eat. Felicity shaking her head. They do not eat insects. This is 1854. They were giving it a crack. They got a lot of stuff wrong. The great flying squirrel is found nearly all over New South Wales. In fact, wherever the large gum trees abound, this animal is sure to be met with. And actually they're in all of Eastern Australia. But we've found out recently, didn't we, that people used to think it was all just the one species of glider, but they're actually three different species. And actually just hearing Mm. you talk, so this article's from 1854, how distressing it is that once this animal was so common Mm. and now they're in just such trouble. Mm. It is. It is upsetting. Like most of the marsupials, it moves about at night. The most remarkable feature in this genus is the broad membrane connecting the fore and hind legs, which enables the animal to leap from tree to tree for a considerable distance. Hence, it has obtained the appellation of the flying squirrel. (laughs) Yeah, because it's the same with other Australian species like the thylacine, which I call the Mm. Tasmanian tiger. Yeah, you've got to link it back to the home country. People can understand, like koala bears. Yes. And then this next part. They say the Aborigines have a superstitious dread of destroying them and it is only when severely pressed by hunger that they are induced to use them as food. Mm. I don't know if that is true. I found other articles saying that Aboriginal people did hunt gliders, but 
it, it, I think what's interesting there is the use of the word superstitious. Yes. Um, mm. Because it's sort of, you know, it's saying that's superstition, it's silly, it's whereas what we're doing is proper science, you know, we're mm. collecting all these species mm. and learning about them and understanding the real thing. Whereas in reality, what we know is there were once lots of greater colliders and they were fine and then European people arrived and now we're in a situation exactly. where we've basically wrecked the place. And also I think also not really acknowledged is that naturalists were really helped by Aboriginal people, like showing them where to go, mm. getting knowledge off them, which was often they didn't write about either and they didn't acknowledge. This is a picture that came with the article. Well, they look very squirrely. Yeah. And the tails aren't <laughs> nearly long enough. Yeah. That. Yeah. But good sleuthing. It's interesting you found an article well, from then. I mean, how amazing. There, the other problem with looking for flying squirrels, I think there was a um, boat called the flying squirrel. <laughs> oh, <laughs> gosh. So the search so when you led search, you. Oh, yeah, you went bloody down a slippery slope. <laughs> um, so yellow belly gliders, different type of glider, not a subset of greater gliders. No. There was an article from the Australasian from the 12th of April 1941 and this article was by David Flay. Have you heard of David Flay, Felicity? No, I haven't. Haven't you? No. He's an interesting man. Um, he, had, he was a naturalist, he was a scientist, biologist, and he had a very full and interesting life. So he actually took some of the last footage, video footage of the last thylacine in captivity and it bit him on the arse. <laughs> The thylacine yeah. or the footage? Oh, literally. <laughs> yeah, he got, yeah. And fair enough. Famous story. Uh, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Oh, and he, he thought so too. Like he was like, oh, yeah. Like he, yeah. Yeah. He, wasn't he had mad. it coming. Um, <laughs> oh, and he was also the first person to breed platypus in captivity. Uh, and he also bred a lot of other animals in captivity. And he had a private collection of native animals. So that's a bit. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> kind of um, like Tiger King. So ethically, it would perhaps not yeah. us today. Well, not today, no. But I mean, he he was very interested in conservation as well. Yeah, it's complicated, I think. Um, <laughs> and he also shipped platypuses to New York. Oh, um, it was like platypus diplomacy. I think it was somehow oh, meant oh. to. It was Instead only of a, an olive branch, send a platypus. Yeah, basically. <laughs> oh. It was only two of them, oh. but, you know, they, they sent them to the zoo. And he was the director of Hillsville Sanctuary mm. for a while. Anyway, he, he wrote in, he had a column in the paper for years and he first published it under the name of Boo Book and then he, under his own name. He, he writes quite evocatively, I think, about the bush. But this is his article about yellow-bellied possum gliders. In the deep tree fern gullies, where the stately white barrels of lofty manor gums tower high above the tangled creeks, the yellow-bellied possum glider has its home, very much the same size as the black flying squirrel or greater possum <laughs> glider. The yellow belly is much more fluffy and shorter in length. His ears are very long and, like the little sugar squirrel to which it is related... It has a greyish or yellowy-brown fur with a dark line running down the middle of the back. Its, shrieking, its shriek echoing through the still gullies at night is the loudest and most piercing uttered by a gliding marsupial. <laughs> I think the, the accepted... Uh, they sound like a pig in a cappuccino machine. <laughs> nice. 
you know, you get this incredible sort of these. Yeah, it's it's an it's an app, such a distinctive call. Fantastic. And if you didn't know that it was a gorgeous yellow belly glider, you may wish to get out of there quick smart. <laughs> this wild terrifying. On yeah. I, when we went out with my kids to see the gliders, my daughter came back making the sounds of a yellow oh, belly glider. for the trip home. Yes. And I, I think some people encouraged her to do that. Yeah. I think <laughs> Felicity and, and one of her friends thought it was, that was quite Amusing, and um, <laughs> and now anytime a yellow-bellied glider is mentioned, she gets this little gleam in her eye, Hello. and she's <laughs> off. And once she, once you see it, like cannot stop it, like she is going to make the yellow-bellied glider sound. The article continues: a non-stop floating leap by these graceful creatures commonly exceeds a hundred yards. In the Mount Wills area of northeastern Victoria, I have stepped out distances up to 115 yards in which the swiftly travelling gliders have manoeuvred gracefully between the intervening trunks of 20 or 30 large eucalypts. So it is amazing how they can fly, isn't it? Yeah. Glide. They're not flying, technically. (laughs) I'm not a physicist. Have you seen one fly, Felicity? Glide. Sorry. (laughs) I haven't seen one glide. Yeah. No. Have you? But I've heard them a lot mm. and I've seen them and I've I love seen, them. I've seen the little sugar gliders gliding. Mm. Yeah, quite often. They're very cute. <laughs> they sort of look like someone leaping out a window with their sleeping bag. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it does look improbable, doesn't it? It does. Particularly when you see them just sitting on a branch, you think, oh, no, no. And when no, it all punches it? back up again, you're yeah. like, oh, okay. Oh. Where did that come from? Okay, the article then finishes off. This species also differs in its feeding methods from other species. And then he says, further notes on its habits will follow next week. Dun, dun, dun. Did it happen? It's a cliffhanger. Wow. (laughs) And was there a follow-up? It was, but people had to wait two whole weeks. My gosh. But I'm nice, so I'm just going to read it now. (laughs) Okay. He continues, this is from the 26th of April, 1941. Yellow-bellied possum glider. The fluffy and very beautiful marsupial parachutist, which (laughs) as a a yellow-bellied possum glider was described a fortnight ago, is entirely different in its feeding habits from the greater or black possum glider. Both are somewhat similar in size and both gurgle and shriek loudly in their nightly aerobatics among the tall timbers. No, the greater gliders don't call out. Uh, they just don't. David Flay. Anyway, he was good at some things. However, the black glider is a leaf eater like the ringtails, which it resembles, and from which it has evidently developed, particularly as there is today one Queensland ringtail with a rudimentary volplaning membranes extending along its flanks. The yellow-bellied glider, on the other hand, is not a leaf eater but it travels far and wide in the gullies at night searching for nectar-laden blossom. Sugary exudations from the trees and for moths, scrubs and sweet-scale insects. Some white-barked eucalypts, particularly specimens of the manor gums, are apparently much sweeter than others, and to such trees their yellow bellies return night after night, using their long, mid, very sharp lower incisor teeth to chew holes in the trunk. 
Felicity's nodding again. David Flay, you're on a winner now. <laughs> um, these deep scars, often of a triangular shape, may be seen extending up and down the trunks of such trees where the nocturnal gliders have bitten in for the sap and inner bark. Food to suit the discerning palate of this gliding creature is not obtained in one or two trees in a small area, and associated with this, the yellow belly represents the peak of development among marsupials in the swift method of aerial locomotion. Members of one family of these pretty gliders, which habitually appeared only half an hour after dark, in tall wallybuck trees above my one-time camp on the slopes of Mount Wills, were found to live in a hollow tree standing in a deep tangled gully at least a mile away. So they live in family groups. Yeah, they? yeah. Do greater gliders? Um, no, I mean, this is kind of interesting. Mm. They're, they're, they're um, similar sized species, mm. but they're so different in their family habits and their mm. eating habits and, you know, how they exist. Um, and the yellow belly gliders do. They travel in fa- family groups and they have a much wider home range than a greater glider. I mean, they still need old trees with hollows, probably because they're, um, and I'm not a scientist, Mm. as you know, um, but probably because they're having a kind of, you know, high energy sugar insects, all sorts of, you know. They're the um, party gliders. Exactly. (laughs) They've got a lot of energy. So they can really, you know, they travel a long way in a short period of time. And they chat to each other while they do it. Oh, Um, yeah. So they're very vocal. Much more sociable. And it is wonderful to see the trees where they've been you know, looking for sap and it's very distinctive and that's one of the things that surveyors look for when they're looking for yellow belly glider habitat. So now we have to talk about threats to gliders. I understand, and maybe I'm wrong because it's actually hard to keep track, the status of gliders has been declining so Mm. um, steeply that it is literally hard to keep track. Mm. My understanding is yellow belly gliders are still listed as vulnerable in Victoria, whereas they're endangered. The greater glider is endangered, but that may have changed. Mm. And certainly the status of greater gliders in New South Wales has recently been upgraded. I mean, it's like a downgrade, isn't it? Yeah. Upgraded. And the numbers that I've often seen is that in the past 20 years, greater glider numbers have decreased by at least 80%. Yes, that's right. Which is amazing in the past 20 years. Yeah, 20 years. Oh, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, So we've got another article by David Flay, and this is from the Argus on the 31st of January 1939. It's titled Tragedy of Fauna, Grim Toll of Fires. And this is known about, this is about the um, 1939 bushfires. The weather conditions were very bad. There'd been a drought. Um, and they made some pretty poor decisions, I think, at the time about oh. how to manage the fires. I think they yeah. lit more fires that then got out yeah. of control. And it's really hot. Light another fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like the way forward. You know what? There isn't enough of fires. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we're still doing that, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, our fire management policies in Victoria and in Australia lead to more and Worse fires. So about 2 million hectares were burned in that fire season. And David Flay wrote, There have been terrible losses among our fauna in the fires that have devastated much of the forest area in Victoria. So few and far between are the green gullies that escape the flames that even animals fortunate enough to escape are now in many cases starving to death. Mm. Big black flying phalanges. Now, flying phalanges... (laughs) 
Is it phalanges or phalanges? I think it's phalanges. Thank you, yeah. zoologist. Um, <laughs> phalanges. Uh, I think it would is a great um, substitute swear word. Mm. I couldn't give a flying phalanger. Yeah, you're pack of phalanges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's the other thing that you've got to search for in Trove if you want to find greater gliders, flying phalanges. Okay. Um, and, but I have tried when I found articles about greater gliders to tag them greater gliders. So if people search for those. I love how helpful you mm. are. Wow, I feel obliged. Yeah, <laughs> I, I admire that. Because other people's work helps me, so I feel like I need to help future people. Anyway, sorry. Big black flying phalanges or possum gliders have been brought to the sanctuary in numbers, have been found crawling about in daylight searching for green leaves. That's terrible. And they're very ungainly on the ground, aren't they? Mm. So once they're not in the trees, they're very, very vulnerable. They perished in thousands during the fires and there remains a common evidence of the destruction of animals throughout the mountainous country. We obviously had some pretty bad fires in 2019, 20. Mm. And when I say pretty bad, they were unprecedented. Mm. They were much worse than these 1939 fires. In Australia, I think 17 million hectares were burned. did read that 50% of gliders range in Victoria was burned in 2019 Mm. fires. So they're losing a lot of their habitat through the fires. Fires are getting worse because of climate change Mm. and we're going to have more fires. So they're Mm. losing their habitat already Mm. because of fires. There was also some, in the archives, there was some discussion of other risks to gliders from the 1950s. There was one mention in an article from the Mountain District Free Press about the hunting of gliders. This said on the 25th of October 1951, and it said, bad news from the Dandenong Nature Lovers Front. The giant flying phalanger, also known as flying squirrel, has disappeared even from places where, but some 20 years ago, he used to be found in fair numbers, according to veteran residents. I made some inquiries and discovered to my disgust that this interesting and attractive marsupial's fur is exported to America, where it is in demand in the fashion trade. Oh. Oh. Which sounds mm. bad. However, after that... There was a response from Norman McCants, which was published on the 1st of November 1951. Now, Norman McCants was an interesting guy because he was actually started life as a radio wrestling commentator. Niche. Or started his career. <laughs> he didn't do it when he was a baby. <laughs> so he was a radio wrestling commentator in the 1920s and then he became a naturalist and he wrote a column. It's in a the... natural evolution. Yeah, really. exactly. I mean, that's <laughs> what, what you used to do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's how we all start yeah. off. <laughs> 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 and boxing, he commentated yes, boxing as yeah, well. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Anyway, so he read this and he was like, mm, okay. And so he wrote and he said, Sir, in the excellent and readable Martin's column last week, it was stated that the giant flying phalanger or flying squirrel has disappeared from these hills because its fur is exported to USA. This is quite incorrect. The fur of these marsupials is unsuitable for furriers the skin being as thin as paper. While, if it could be tanned and processed, only about one in 20 of these I have handled were perfect, the fur being uneven and patchy. <laughs> which which means sorry, skinning them. Yeah, I think he's given it a crack. <laughs> or, or there were specimens from museums from, yeah. They Let's go with collect. that. It's yeah. less concerning. The animal is closely protected and their skins could not be exported, even if they had any value. Moreover, they cannot be trapped like possums because their nocturnal journeys from tree to tree are aerial and nobody is likely to sit up all night for a worthless skin with cartridges at one... Is that one pound or one shilling each? 
Anyway, they're too expensive to shoot. There was another letter where someone said, oh, no, they do trap. They do catch some of them with poison jam. Oh, uh, this is so distressing to hear. That, you know, going out, spreading poison oh, jam. No. Oh. I know. And then also they said it was um, feral cats as well were a major threat to gliders. But I, I no, know. Feral I, cats can't. There's no way. Not that I would know what a feral cat can do, and I know they cause a lot of damage. Mm, but More on greater, the ground, I would have thought. Exactly. <laughs> greater gliders are just so high up. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to exonerate mm. the feral cats at all. No. Um, <laughs> but don't make a hat out of them, Penny. It's going too far. Norman continues, the phalanges are still in our forests in the hills and have been seen at Avon's Lee recently. But being nocturnal and frequenting tall timber, no one sees much of them. They are not as numerous as they were, but what native fauna is? Mm. True. Diplomatic. <laughs> We've wrecked it all. But the factors that have removed their numbers are bushfires and the felling of mm. big trees. This has driven them back from settled areas where they still hold their own. A factor that may tend to preserve them is that they nest only in hollow eucalypts, generally ignored by axemen. So basically what Norman's saying is it's not because people are killing them and exporting their skins it's because we're chopping down their habitat. Mm. It's their habitat loss. That's yeah. the, He's glossed the over deal. that a bit, hasn't he? He's sort of <laughs> sanitised it for the reader. Yeah, and he's, he's, he's had a hopeful thought that maybe it'll be okay because they won't chop down their hollow trees. We find that greater glider habitat is the exact forest, the, exactly the same forest mm. that our um, state logging agency targets mm. because it's old forest. Mm. And it's still happening, like... Yes, 2022 in Victoria, we're still logging the habitat of endangered species. 20, oh, <laughs> 2023, so it's even worse. Yeah, 2023. One year worse. Yeah, it's extraordinary that this is still happening. And they need they need to have hollow trees, don't they, to nest in? And they tend to need to be older trees too, mm. so the younger trees don't have hollows. Yeah, that's right. So I mean, greater gliders, they need like. A big space, mm. and so th- they need trees. That I mean, it depends on the species of tree, and it also depends apparently whether or not there's been a bushfire through. So younger stands of forest, mixed species forest. Sometimes that sometimes there's big enough hollows mm. to to accommodate gliders. Mm-hmm. Um, but in mountain ash forest, so that's Eucalyptus regnans. That's kind of the key mm-hmm. species of the Central Highlands. Generally, a tree would need to be two hundred years plus for it to be suitable habitat for greater gliders. Right, mm. okay. And they also need multiple dens. So they don't just have one little home. They right. need they they have a a range and they Property need portfolio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's not it's not one location. They yeah, so mm. Mm. Yeah, that's I didn't know that. That's interesting. And so yeah. sometimes I see things about nest boxes and I know they are helpful for some species, but would nest boxes be any good for gliders? Look, maybe, um, but it, it alarms me greatly to hear nest boxes spouted as the solution when mm. we're still cutting down habitat. Yeah. So if, yes, we stopped logging across all areas of important forest, in fact, all areas of forest because they're not the only species that are in trouble, yeah. and we look at who are the scientists that are looking at whether nest boxes work for gliders? Yeah, let's support them with that research. But you can't really do that and keep cutting down trees, can yeah, you? It's very much an ambulance at the bottom of the mm. cliff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 
I mean, exactly. we've got a number of possum boxes on our property. We've got four of them and it gives us a great thrill because there's one on our driveway that we can see and we have our little resident brushy tail who looks out sometimes as we're coming in or out of the property so that, you know, we feel really like we're doing our <laughs> bit. Um, but I haven't seen them used by anything except ringtails or yeah. brushy tails. Not that obviously I've got greater gliders in my back garden but... I think well, that's the thing. You yeah, can't yeah. choose which species no. is going to use the next box and, either. And, yeah. Oh, we did have some Indian miners nests, <laughs> right? Which was yeah. probably not no. <laughs> fair the, enough. Um, I mean, the other important factor is what are they going to eat? You know, mm, greater yeah. gliders eat, um, you know, a limited number of eucalypt species, mm. so they can't eat their nest box. You know, no. With the logging of the forest, which is obviously bad for greater gliders, it's bad for a lot of things. Um, it's bad for a lot of species. We're talking about greater gliders, but obviously mm. there's a much Huge broader extinction yeah. crisis that's that's happening, and it's bad for people as well. Yeah, um, makes bushfires worse. Mm. It threatens water catchments, and it costs us money. Mm. And Vic Forest actually in the annual report last year posted a loss of $54 million and they also, I think, received subsidy. They got money from the Victorian government already of $25 million. So just to keep on logging. Yes, to keep logging. And most of of what they produce goes into making paper and... Um, yeah, that's right. Um, low, yeah, low, low value. It's not like these wood from these important trees is used to make violins or tables at all. Mm. It's, um, and things that have another way that you could um, – they have another – they could be replaced with something else that's not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Look, it's um, – logging in Victoria is a filthy, corrupt and dirty disgrace that mm. really needs to stop. And, you know, of course, the other thing – not only are they heavily subsidised, they also receive conservation money. So our um, oh, yes. our government oh. say, oh, look, we've put however many million dollars into conservation efforts. But that includes money that goes to Vic Forests to not log certain areas of important habitat. So how that is a good use of conservation money, I just don't really understand. Um, I mean, I'm not going to pretend. I think uh, it, the system is appalling. Yeah, I'm, we're not. Uh, we're not both sides in yeah, one no. either. No. <laughs> this is an anti-logging project. Yeah, I podcast. Mean. Anti-native forest logging, I should say, because it's actually quite a small proportion of the even the forestry industry. Now, this is also depressing. I've got another article. Sorry about this. This is from the 15th of May, 1953. It was in the Sun in Sydney. And it's titled, Uni Couldn't Save Rare Animal. One of the rarer examples of New South Wales wildlife, a greater flying phalanger, was kept alive at Sydney University for a month on a diet of apple, sprinkled with sugar and cream. Wow. That's so disturbing. Yeah. The animal, which was rescued from a barbed wire fence on the New South Wales-Queensland border, died last weekend. Director of Research of the New Medical School, Dr A. Bollinger, tried to keep the creature alive. Mm. Dr Bollinger said today that the animal was a marsupial similar to a possum. It is gradually becoming extinct as its natural habitat, tall gum trees, disappear. This was in 1953, Mm. so they knew. Mm. The animal has pouches of skin like a bat which enable it to fly from tree to tree. The specimen which died at the university had sooty black fur and was about four feet long. So, look, it feels like 
the university maybe did not do the best ever effort of no, <laughs> looking after this. Sugar and apples, not uh, maybe not the best, but generally gliders don't do well in in captivity. No, anyway, even, they don't. Even when you don't feed it apple crumble. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't think. I don't think there's any, there are any at Hillsville. You know, they just no. don't survive. Uh, other articles from around this time where people would sometimes rescue a glider that they found on a barbed wire fence or something and say to the zoo, do you want it? And one, and the zoo said, no, because we can't keep them alive. Yeah. So captive breeding isn't, isn't an option for gliders. So if people want to help gliders, I think what we've talked about today is what gliders need is their homes. They mm. need their habitat. Can I mention our court case? I would love you to mention the court case because this is uplifting. Yes, actually, this is ter- this is this terrific. Is exciting. I'm involved with a group called King Lake Friends of the Forest, and our group, alongside Environment East Gippsland and Gippsland Environment Group, have uh, successfully argued and argued in court and won a case that has been about greater gliders and yellow belly gliders. And effectively, our court case has really brought the whole disgusting logging industry in Victoria to its knees. Wow. It's in really... Yeah. And I'm very, very um, proud yes. that's happened. Oh, you should be. So uh, what we've argued in court and which has been accepted is that before an area of forest is logged, before an area of native forest is logged, the area should be surveyed for greater gliders surveyed and yellow. properly as Yeah, well. surveyed. Yeah. Got a, no, can't see yeah. any here. Exactly, <laughs> which, is, which is basically what's, what's happened over many years. You know, um, logging agencies don't want to find animals so they don't look and they mm. just log. So what used to happen um, was they would just log and not know what was there and then everything would die. So we argued that areas should be adequately surveyed, so comprehensive surveys, and then once animals are detected in an area, then um, there should be a protection of the home range, so the, yeah. the tree in which the animal's found and then mm-hmm. um, surrounding habitat and, you know, other features like, you know, the waterways which usually accommodate larger populations. So we successfully argued this, which means that now for logging occurs in Victoria, you know, there needs to be comprehensive surveying. Well done. Basically, if we find gliders, then the area is saved from logging. So there are huge efforts mm. underway to go surveying, spotlight surveying. Yes. Um, the greater glider is a, a really helpful animal to um, for a kind of everyday person off the street mm. to survey. You don't need um, special skills and equipment. You just, you just need a little bit of training. Gliders, when you shine a torch on them in a tree, they're curious. They will look mm. back at you. They won't move. You mm. know, they're slow moving. They don't moving. mind noise. They don't, they don't mind noise. <laughs> so as, you know, and I, I've done this, I fumble with the camera and the, I can't get the torch in the right place and it takes me 15 minutes to get my act together to be able to locate, get the GPS set up, hardly a refined mm. wildlife surveyor. The greater glider just sits there waiting. So it's perfect yeah. for... Everyday people. Loves the paparazzi. <laughs> yes, that's right. So really surveying a forest can be undertaken really by a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. and so people can... We want people yeah. to get involved I'll in put surveying. On, I'll put in the show, I'll put links that people can yes. see if they're interested in coming along. Yes, so we're really trying to build up a surveying capacity, volunteer surveying mm-hmm. capacity. Uh, we still don't trust that 
Vic Forest will adequately survey. So we're going to be surveying all the areas and we are. Yeah. And what about just your normal contacting politicians? Uh, look, sure. I, <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, they have. I feel like they have been told. <laughs> yeah, you know, yes, well, but actually the, the industry's on its knees. Yeah. I don't think it's going to hurt. <laughs> Everyone should be contacting their local MP saying, what's this about logging in Victoria? It needs to stop. Actually, if enough people did that, mm. the industry would be, it would be closed tomorrow. Mm. So political and pressure. And it's very easy to call, because I used to be really nervous about things like this, but it's so easy to call a politician's office. Yeah. The person on the phone, you've not, well, not, probably not, you're not going to get to speak to the politician, but they'll take your message. It's, you're not going to have an argument. You just no, get no. to say what you want to say. Yes. And they'll pass it on. So it's yes. very easy. Yes. Mm. Um, of course, the other important thing that I'd just like to mention, mm. although we've run the court case about glider species, it's everything in a forest that's important. Yes. Mm. And you protect a glider, you protect all yeah. sorts of, yeah, the invertebrates, the yeah. moths, the microbats, all of it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And also carbon storage well, as well. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes, like I'm laughing nervously, but our native forests in Victoria are among the most carbon dense in the mm. world. It's mm. the truth. Yeah. Um, so we, we really need the carbon storage. It's very expensive running these um, <laughs> these legal cases, and so yes, it sure is. There are also groups that you can donate to as well. There are lots of wonderful forest groups that deserve support. Um, the Victorian Forest Alliance is now a you know an overarching umbrella group, so they're a good agency to look up and support. And in fact, anyone, any of the smaller environment groups that are taking on the state logging agency need financial support. Mm. I think that court case is so exciting. And it I, is, yeah. I would, you know, it's it's like, it's Aaron Brockovich kind of stuff. Like they'll make a movie about it one day. I really well, hope, yeah. I really hope it's the end of the industry and the start of. It is actually amazing. King Lake Friends of the Forest, our group, we're a bunch of middle-aged to older women. None of us are trained. Yeah. You know, we just love the forest and we've won against the big juggernauts. Yeah, so that's, that's pretty cool. Absolutely amazing. It's very exciting. <laughs> it is pretty yeah. great. But any anyone who wants to come out spotlighting, all they have to do is call me and we'll work it out. There's a lot to still they're... celebrate. And the other thing is there's a lot that's still worth saving. Yes. So people mm. think, oh, you know, we've been logging for this long, it's finished, there's no point, we've lost everything that's valuable. And actually that's not true. There's no. really important areas that are still worth fighting for. Uh, the fight for forests has been going on for a, a long, long time. time. Exactly. And there have been a lot of people who've put in really, yep. really hard yards and actually had some big wins. Mm. If you look at what's actually been protected. Yes. Yeah. Bit by bit, like it all that kind of adds up and it means that we're, we're in this situation now where we've still got forests yep. that's worth fighting for. It's exactly. because of the people that yep. have been fighting before. It's a really long, <laughs> it's hard yards. But I like to think, I mean, I feel like, We've reached a point now where it's on a knife edge. It has to fall over. The industry has mm, to collapse. Yeah. Maybe it's already collapsed. I like to think it has. We'll yeah. see this. what happens this year. Excellent. And we talked at the start about Trove needing ongoing funding. And obviously you can't compare the loss of cultural knowledge and the loss of biodiversity and species. But I do think the common thing is a sort of a short-term thinking mm. Um mm and not thinking about what, what people are going to need in the future. Absolutely. So thank you, Christina and Felicity. 
Yeah, yeah. People will like to learn about gliders. Mm. Some people think they're birds for something. Okay, you can do it.